Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Laura. Uh, thank you for handling that slightly complicated reading as we move into this next uh, section of the book of Revelation. Um, before we jump in, uh, let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, we have ears. <laughs> Let us hear what you are saying to us as individual Christians, as a church, as members of the church universal. Help us to listen carefully to what you are saying to us and respond uh, by turning uh, from sin and that which is wrong uh, to your love and grace, uh, to obedience and to a life that pleases you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the Ancient of Days. Amen. Uh, so not many movies have gained the status of being pretty much universally loved. But one movie that I think does get there is probably Pixar's Inside Out. Uh, I'm sure most of you have seen it. If you've got kids, you've definitely seen it. Uh, on one level, the story is ridiculously simple. It's the story of a little girl called Riley who moves house and moves cities with her parents. But the film's genius lies in illustrating how a simple event like moving house could actually set off a series of complex chain reactions inside a person's mind. Riley's emotions are cast as individual characters. We've got joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. And whenever her inner life is controlled just by one or two emotions, then her outer life suffers. But as the story progresses and her emotions learn to work together, she gains the ability to deal with her external challenges in an increasingly mature way because she has found an internal balance of emotions. So basically, Pixar manages to make a funny, clever, memorable film about developing really good mental health. It's incredible. It might not seem like it at first glance, but Revelation actually plays on the same inside-out dynamic. Most of the book, actually chapters 4 through 22, are about the external challenges facing the Christian church, particularly in the first century, but the church throughout the ages as well. But chapters 2 and 3 are quite different. The focus is not so much the threats outside, though that's there too, but actually much more the threats that lurk within. Now, you remember from last week that most of Revelation is written in that weird ancient genre um, apocalypse or apocalyptic writing. Um, you go back to last week's sermon on the podcast to find out more about that. But chapters 2 and 3 are different. They're not uh, written as an apocalypse, they're actually Letters. Letters. Classic letters. Seven letters, in fact, to seven churches in seven cities, sent by the risen Jesus himself. These letters are designed to help the churches confront their inner dangers so that they can be prepared to confront the threats outside. It's actually about developing a healthy inner life for a church. And they have to do this because if they don't, then Jesus says they may not survive the battles to come. 
Now, these letters were originally sent to the churches of ancient cities. We heard some of them read before, but they hold true for modern churches too. Even after 2,000 years, the same internal threats lurk in modern churches. And Jesus' call echoes down through the centuries. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Listening well to God's Spirit is what it takes to survive the battles ahead and to be victorious. Now, there's an incredible amount of stuff going on in these seven letters, and I'd love one day to circle back around and spend one series just on them uh, because they're deep and profound. But for now, I want to just draw out three key ideas. Jesus reveals two deadly internal threats and one strategy to defeat them both. Okay, so two threats and one strategy for victory. So let's start with the two threats. The first threat that we see um, is spiritual unfaithfulness. Now, uh, on the theme of animated movies, um, one of my all-time favorites, probably my favorite Disney um, film, is Hercules. How good is it? It's just hilarious. It's great. I love it. Um, and you remember all the gods in, in the story, right? There's Zeus, there's Hera, there's Hades, there's a bunch of them. Well, in the first century, those very gods and many, many others, known, mostly known by their Roman names at that point, uh, made up what we know as Roman paganism. The worship of these multiple gods permeated every aspect of everyday life. You couldn't even go to the market to buy some food for your family without coming into contact with some aspect of pagan worship. It's kind of hard for us to understand, but imagine trying to get through life without the internet. I know, it's a horrible thought, right? Uh, it would be possible, but pretty difficult. Well, paganism was, was kind of like the ancient broadband. It was just such a part of the fabric of society, it was almost impossible to avoid. Now, amongst all this, we have the Christians. Christianity in that first century was a tiny religious movement um, trying to struggle to uh, maintain their really strange and weird idea that there was only one true God who deserves worship. Their life, their religious conviction put them into direct conflict with the way society was set up. We know from the Gospels that Jesus taught a way that involved uncompromising commitment to worshipping the God of Israel alone and forsaking all other gods as false. Uh, in fact, quoting from Deuteronomy, Jesus reiterated um, what's known as the Shema. It's the, the core prayer of the ancient Israelites. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. God and his position as king over all demands that he alone can occupy the highest position in any human life. But imagine being a Christian, uh, part of this new and tiny movement, swimming in a sea of 
multiple gods every day. Imagine how hard that would be, how much pressure there would be to conform, and imagine how easily it could be that a different kind of teaching might gain a foothold in churches. And that's what happened. Three groups, in fact, had, it seems, gained considerable influence, particularly in the churches of Pergamum and Theatira. And they're called by nicknames, these groups, so it's hard for us to know exactly who they were, but they were called the Nicolaitans, the followers of Balaam, and the children of Jezebel. Presumably the people who are hearing these letters would know exactly who they were, but we don't know so much who they were, but we do know what kind of teaching they were promoting. Balaam was an Old Testament figure um, in the book of Numbers who had convinced the Israelites to begin worshipping the gods of Moab. And Jezebel was the famously manipulative wife of King Ahab who convinced her husband to promote in Israel the worship of her people's god, Baal. So it seems that these groups, along with the Nicolaitans, had begun convincing Christians that it was perfectly okay to worship other pagan gods alongside Jesus. It was basically saying that Jesus was just another god in the pantheon who would be good for some things, but wouldn't it be better to hedge your bets and worship some of the other ones as well? Now, um, these groups seem to be promoting uh, two practices which are mentioned. The first is eating food sacrificed to idols. What's that about? Well, uh, it probably refers to the common practice of local temples holding these lavish feasts um, in honor of that particular god. And all citizens were either uh, governmentally expected or at least very incredibly socially expected to attend. Refusing to turn up to one of these feasts would not go unnoticed in a city, quite a small city, where everyone's business was everyone else's business. So that's one practice. The other practice is simply put as sexual immorality. Now, what's going on there? Well, um, it could be uh, sexual immorality quite literally. Some of the temples to some of the gods um, were known to be full of uh, kind of ritualistic temple prostitutes. So a journey into that temple would come with all sorts of um, invitations uh, to be whisked away into a dark corner somewhere for a liaison. So it could be talking about that. But in Revelation, sexual immorality is used over and over again to mean spiritual adultery. Um, what do I mean? Well, in any marriage, adultery is a devastating dishonor against a spouse. And this is infinitely more true with God, who has graciously pursued and wooed and brought his church out of dishonor and lavished his love and affection on her as his bride. To give worship to another God, then, is nothing less than spiritual adultery. It's treachery. So it seems there was a seductive message swelling within the churches, which was, why limit yourself to this God Jesus? Everyone worships multiple gods. Why not hedge your bets? Why not add a few more into your worship life, just in case they turn out to be better at some things or more powerful than Jesus? We would be naive to think that 
this would be easy to resist. When literally everybody you know does it, how easy it would be to compromise just a little. And if we think about it, maybe we actually do know how seductive that message is. Back in the 1980s, the great Christian writer, thinker, Leslie Newbigin, uh, imagined that the Western world was not actually becoming, as many thought, uh, a secular place completely devoid of religion. Uh, he wrote in one book, uh, the result is not, as we once imagined, a secular society. It is a pagan society. Now, the details of that could be debated, but what it seems like he meant was not that we would be seeing a return to the ancient Greek gods or Roman gods. No, he meant that the West was rapidly creating its own pantheon, not with literal temples and statues, but nonetheless with a multitude of gods, of things that we would put our trust in. You might remember Andy Jard preached for us on the Ten Commandments earlier in the year, and um, he mentioned his sermon that he thought that an ancient city citizen of Rome might feel very at home in modern Melbourne. They might easily see evidence of the worship of the god Bacchus, the god of wine, or Mercury, the god of banking and business, or Venus, the god of sex, love, beauty, and fertility. They don't go by those names, but these modern gods uh, demand worship in ways that are quite subtle but have no less of a grip on our everyday lives. The god of food and drink promises, sacrifice your money and your time to me and I will make you satisfied. The God of work and career, of success, promises, sacrifice your times of rest and Sabbath, your family and community to me. Sacrifice to me your, your time to work and, and I will make you successful and respected. And the God of sex and beauty, or perhaps he has more adherents than any of them, give yourself over to every sexual desire that you have, and I will give you pleasure that will fulfill you. Sacrifice your humility for vanity. Sacrifice your contentment for envy, and I will make others love and be jealous of you. Resisting the pressure to honor these modern gods isn't very easy, actually, because just like in ancient times, the, their rituals of worship are woven into everyday life. And it doesn't take much for them to be woven into the life of the church. Imagine a church that prioritizes comfort and luxury over service and generosity. Imagine a church that applauds success and financial security far over humility and contentment with less. Imagine a church that either deliberately ignores the Bible's teachings about sex or simply just doesn't talk about it very much. Imagine anything else that might sit proudly alongside the God of the Bible and capture the hearts of those who sit in the pews. It happens easily. It could happen to us. The pressures are already here. The temptations are already there. We live in a society that's already made up its mind that following 
these modern gods and sacrificing to them is not just good and acceptable, but moral. So refusing to live that way will come at a cost of some sort. But we've got to remember that Jesus himself said, you cannot serve two masters. It's a perfect insight into why ultimately paganism, whether ancient or a modern version, doesn't really work. Because it's impossible to, to divide your ultimate affections. From a, uh, from a, this isn't actually even that hard to see if you're not a Christian. Isn't it true that we chase after one goal and even achieve that goal, but soon that thing doesn't really give the satisfaction that we thought it would anymore, and so we chase something else until that loses its beauty as well, and then we chase something else. So we can't actually seem to serve more than one thing at a time. And for Christians, well, chasing after other gods or idols not only breaks the law of God we believe in, but it breaks his heart. It may leave us despising him and dishonoring what he has done for us. For a whole church to be led down that path, well, that's to see a church go towards ruin. And so Jesus does not mince his words to those who are beginning to flirt with unfaithfulness here, in the, particularly in um, Pergamon and Theatira. And in fact, he says to Pergamon, repent, or otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against you with the sword that comes out of my mouth. Spiritual unfaithfulness makes an enemy of King Jesus. And so it is a deadly threat to a church. That's the first one. The second threat is quite different, but no less a problem. It's called loveless religion. Now, lots of churches are very aware of the dangers of spiritual unfaithfulness, and they're very aware of looking out for false teaching and looking out for worship of idols and all that sort of thing. And they make it their sworn duty to avoid it at all costs, and that's a really good thing. But it comes with a danger because it opens the door for another threat to sneak in. Loveless religion. This is the problem of the very first church on the list, the church in Ephesus. Jesus begins his letters to them with an encouragement. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and perseverance. I know you can't tolerate wicked people. And you've persevered and you have endured hardship for my name and you have not grown weary. Seems like the Ephesians had taken to heart what Paul, the apostle, told them back in Acts 20. Remember, we preached on it a few weeks ago. They've been on the lookout for wolves in the flock, false teachers with false teaching, and they've expelled, identified and expelled any that try and come into their ranks, particularly, Jesus says, the Nicolaitans. This is the kind of church um, that's really commonly found in the tradition that we ourselves at Inner West sit in. It values sound theology, values great preaching, serious about discipleship and mission, by, by all accounts doing really well, solid and healthy, probably even growing, developing a tireless perseverance that Jesus himself would applaud them for. Yet here's the thing. 
in their determination to safeguard the truth of God, the Ephesians have lost their love. Their minds are sharp, but their hearts have grown cold. The journey began with love, their love for Jesus and his good news that inspired them actually to love his truth and safeguard it. But it seems that at some point they stopped loving Jesus and started loving being right. Truth without love is nothing but a blunt instrument that cares much more about winning a battle than about winning a person. Truth with love means extending respect, compassion and understanding even to people you completely disagree with. The Ephesians' problem was that they had lost love and they had found truth. We might feel like Jesus is a bit harsh with the Ephesians. At the end of the letter, he literally says, uh, I might come and remove your lampstand, basically to bring that church to an end. It seems a bit harsh. But remember that Jesus' harshest words in the Gospels were to another religious community that had lost love for God. And along with that, grace and mercy, instead began loving, lording their rightness over others. Remember the Pharisees? Jesus was harsh to the Pharisees, and he is harsh to Christian Pharisees. Because a version of Christianity that is loveless, oh, that's an affront to God who is love. A church meant to be a light to the world, representing the unending, never stopping, giving everything love of God, well, it makes sense that if a church loses that light, that they might eventually be stamped out. Loveless religion is just as much a temptation as spiritual unfaithfulness. In some ways, it's more insidious because it's easier to think that you're doing well. But ironically, it's a result of serving another God too. It's another version of spiritual unfaithfulness. It's the serving of the God of religious superiority, of spiritual pride. In our society, it can look a couple of different ways. Like It can look like adopting an attitude of defensiveness, and that often leads to being offensive, actually. The world out there becomes the enemy. Loving thy neighbor is replaced with judging thy neighbor. Mercy and grace is replaced with suspicion and entitlement. Compassion replaced with impatience and annoyance. Sharing your faith with others is encouraged, but not out of a love for people to win them to Christ, but out of a desire to bolster the ranks. This attitude of defensiveness inevitably becomes extended not just to the world, but to other churches. The faithful desire to safeguard the truth of Jesus, well, it becomes suspicion of any church that doesn't totally match your beliefs, totally line up to every aspect of what you think this church thinks about what is the right way to go. Not just the primary beliefs of Christianity, but actually inevitably a host of secondary beliefs too. I'm always reminded that the fruit of the Spirit starts with love, but continues to joy, peace, patience, kindness. But the fruit of loveless religion, 
When love is gone, well, its fruit is always self-righteousness, pride, bitterness, suspicion, and joylessness. Those that love lose the love that they had at first. They may finish the race fully expecting the victor's crown, but God may well, well say to them, I never knew you, because actually they never really knew him. Now these are hard words to hear, both those two uh, about spiritual unfaithfulness and also about loveless religion. That's, it's hard to hear. It should make us feel uncomfortable and make us ask the question, well, where do we sit? Where do we sit as a church? Where do we sit as individual Christians? Which voice am, are we more likely to listen to? The one that tempts towards unfaithfulness or the one that calls for truth at the expense of love? Every church may drift one way or the other. Which way does our church drift? Well, as I read these passages and I started to ponder this question, I found I could imagine both. I can see us drifting towards unfaithfulness in worship. Not in every way, perhaps, but some modern gods seem more likely than others for us. The God of comfort and pleasure, of wine and food, the gods that are easily kept in middle-class neighbourhoods of Melbourne. We too could find ourselves adopting the words of the church at Laodicea, saying, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. How horrible to be compared compared by Jesus to disgusting, lukewarm water that's good for nothing but to be spat out in the sink. So we could go that way. We could also drift the other way. We stand in a tradition that has held firm to the truth of the gospel, the core message of, of Jesus. We take the Bible seriously. We take mission seriously. We stand against teaching that we believe is unfaithful and unfruitful. We could see those who we disagree with as enemies to defeat rather than as brothers and sisters to love even in disagreement. We could drift that way too. We too could become loveless both to the world and also to other parts of the church. Family, we have ears, right? That means that these messages are to us. We have ears, so we need to listen to what the Spirit is saying to us. If we are all tempted one way or the other, then we should figure out which way, which way our church is tempted, when that happens, and also each of us individually, which will be tempted one way or the other. So if that's the case, if we're all drifting or can potentially drift, then what does it take to stay faithful? Jesus ends each letter with a cry, To the one who is victorious, I will grant the great and abundant blessings of eternal life. What does it take to be among the victorious? Well, the words of Jesus to that final church, the lukewarm church, Laodicea, we get a clue. Verse 20 is chapter 3. Here I am, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. 
you might have heard this verse um, explained as what Jesus says to people who have yet to become Christians, that he stands at the door and knocks at the heart of someone who has yet to um, come and meet him for the first time. But look at the context. Who is Jesus talking to here? Not non-Christians, not people outside the church. He's talking to Christians, to a church. He's knocking at the door of those who have put their faith and trust in him, calling them to open the door and let him in, because presumably they have pushed him outside. This is an invitation that Jesus extends to all churches who have begun to drift towards unfaithfulness or lovelessness. Let Jesus into your midst again and he will feast with you. Jesus was always eating in the Gospels, going from one meal to another. And here in Revelation, that feasting and eating language continues, but with a whole new meaning. A feast is a picture of being completely satisfied with, with the fullness of God, being in perfect and loving relationship and intimacy and friendship with Jesus. Jesus is saying that the antidote to drifting one way or the other is to maintain an internal balance in the life of a church that is continually and fully feasting, not just with Jesus, but on Jesus. Those who are drifting towards spiritual unfaithfulness need to feast on Jesus as he introduces himself to the church in Theatira. He is the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. It's a picture of the utter holiness of God, a God who is far above every other God, a God who says to his church, Be holy as I am holy. This is Jesus who can demand faithfulness from us because he was faithful to us, even to die to forgive our lack of faith. The faithful one demands our faithfulness. And those who are losing their love, well, they need to feast on Jesus as he introduces himself to the Ephesians. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars are a picture of the church of God held in the palm of God's hand. This is Jesus who loves his church, his precious star, who holds her in the palm of his hand to shelter and protect. This is Jesus who himself let the darkness snuff out his light on that dark day on Calvary so that we might be given the light of God, so that we might shine with him as stars in the heaven. Those who are losing their love need to again see the God who is love and who offers his love to us. It's never comfortable having your inside brought out, is it? But when we lay our unfaithfulness before the faithful one, he is true to his promise. When we lay our lovelessness at the feet of the loving one, he is true to his promise to love and to forgive and to restore and to enter back into relationship with us and feast with him. Not that we ever really lost him. He was always with us. But sometimes we can cut ourselves off from his goodness, his abundance, his beauty, his truth. And we can suffer for it. 
So this is an invitation to repent, to turn and, and come back. And as we do, and as we find an inner uh, balance between lovelessness and unfaithfulness, when we come to this side, figure out what it really means to follow Jesus all the way to the end and gain victory, well, that's when we will be ready to face whatever challenges may come from the outside. That's when we will learn what it means to stand firm, to have true spiritual resources. That's what that will mean. So church, what will we do? In a second, I'm going to give us time, a few minutes to of silence, to reflect and maybe pray. Maybe repent. Maybe repent of how you see you playing your own part in all this. But for now, let me pray and let me repent on all of us, uh, on behalf of us, on behalf of our church. Uh, then we'll have a time of silence. And then uh, if you've got questions, I'd love to try and answer them. So send them through. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you. The one who walks among the lampstands, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who is, whose eyes are blazing fire, whose feet are burnished bronze. We come before you, holy Jesus, and we lay, our, uh, we lay before you and we ask your forgiveness. We repent, for we have all wandered from our way. We have been seduced by idols, by other gods that have promised so much and let, yet given so little. And the times we have lost our lovelessness. We have lost our love that we had at first. And we've grown dry and cracked and lost the ability to offer love to others and be the kind of light that you would have us be. Father, forgive us. We have sinned against you in thought, word and deed and in what we have failed to do. We have not done as you call us in Deuteronomy to love you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbour as ourselves. Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, forgive us and bring us back. Jesus, we open the door for you to come in and feast with us and to once again show us your abundance, to show us how you can satisfy our thirst, satisfy our hunger, give us shelter and be our shield, that you can be our victory. Jesus, we ask you to be all these things for us and infinitely more. And it's in your name that we pray and offer ourselves to you. Amen. I'll give you a few minutes uh, and then I'll be back to answer some questions. Okay, thank you for sending in your questions. Um, before I answer or respond, um, just a reminder, Gerald's going to be praying uh, on behalf of all of us uh, just in just a little bit. And if you have anything you'd like him to pray for, anything that's going on in your life, in the life of family or friends or the world, um, then just uh, if you can send them through in the chat to Gerald, um, he'll be happy to bring um, weave that into his prayer. Now, some, some doozy questions. Um, start with this. Is it right to understand the letters to the seven churches as directly from Jesus, i.e. John was struck by the Spirit and wrote out word for word what it instructed him? Or would John have had a role in composing and constructing the letters by the inspiration of the Spirit in him? Uh, it's a bit of a technical question, and I must admit that I probably haven't read heaps 
up on this exact point. Um, the reason I like to think that we should see it directly from Jesus is because it clearly states that. It's not the sense in the, in the way it's composed that, um, that John had some deep theological thoughts about the gospel and then composed them into a letter. The sense is that Jesus, in this vision, um, spoke to him. Uh, in the, even in the first person. So that's why I think it's probably helpful to see this as the words of the risen Jesus like, to us, um, with John as an intermediary, I guess. But I could be wrong. That's my guess. Uh, secondly, if loveless religion maintains a confession of the core Christian beliefs and a basic repentance, why would Jesus say, I never knew you? So I was quoting there from uh, the Gospel, from Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is a really confronting passage of Jesus, uh, which seems to say that you can, um, you can have a Christian confession of faith. You can say the right things. You can assent to the right theologies and doctrines, um, and yet not actually be part of God's church. Um, that God requires... Um, not just uh, a confession of a mouth, but a belief of the heart. And a belief of the heart always works itself out in the fruits of the Spirit, love being one of them. Uh, so Jesus could say to someone, I never knew you, simply because, well, they may have, um, in, by intellect, thought they knew him, but actually in the depths of their hearts, that it wasn't the case. That's a really uh, challenging statement. Not that I think we need to be going around like, super afraid that, that Jesus would say that to us, although for some people that might be the case. Um, I think that if you're seeing your, your life, um, the, the fruit of the Spirit developing in your life, if you, see, if, you, uh, if you truly love Jesus and worship Him, if you uh, are experiencing His grace and His love, then there's no need to uh, be worried that that would be necessarily be the case for you. But Jesus says it, it's important to take that seriously. Uh, a pre-question from someone, which is about, uh, do you think there are spiritual forces behind our modern idols in the same way there were in ancient times? Um, or were there even spiritual forces behind ancient gods? That's a great question. Um, I think yes. I think this, that was true in ancient times. It's true today. In fact, if you read through the letters carefully, you'll see that Jesus mentions uh, Satan several times as being uh, this, this dark, personal, malevolent force uh, behind, uh, certain, um, behind the threats that were coming against the church. Uh, he rec he, uh, in, in his letter to the Pergamon, he references the, the, um, the throne of Satan, which was probably the temple of Zeus that um, Pergamon was famous for. Um, so, yes, the revelation is really clear that that it's, this book is a peek behind the curtain towards the spiritual forces uh, that were driving um, physical, uh, like real people to do uh, physical things. Um, so yes, I think that there is, that Satan is the arch nemesis of God, the enemy of all that is good, um, of God and his angels, of his church. And so yes, Satan is partly responsible for driving um, all sorts of things to try and bring the church down. 
that being said, um, Satan isn't responsible for everything. We also have sin in our lives, and sin by itself is a um, very powerful force um, that I think Satan uses and takes advantage of, um, but that in and of itself is a, um, a problem as well. So I don't know, uh, hopefully that answers the question somewhat. I think it's important to be reminded of. Uh, yes, it's important to be reminded of because it's not that it just this is a neutral thing where we're kind of walking along and we might fall one or the other. No, there is a real spiritual force that is tempting and is, a, as um, the Bible says, a roaring lion seeking to kill and destroy. So we should pray. We should put on the armor of God. We should be very aware of um, uh, what dangers lie for us and wait for us. Okay, I th is that all the questions? Oh, uh, can you offer practical suggestions for how people can reignite their first love? I love this question. It's a great question. Um, yes, I think it's about reigniting a love for Jesus. Well, how do we do that? I think it's a, a good way to think about it is to remind ourselves that we are embodied people. Uh, we're not just minds, not brains on sticks. Um, we're uh, not just bodies, we're, we're, we're embodied, where uh, we relate and experience things in different ways. Uh, reigniting love for Jesus, I think, a good way to think about it is to try and connect with him in as many different ways as possible. So with your mind, you might go back to a gospel, maybe something that you thought was really familiar, and read it slowly and carefully. Um, try and um, allow the words to the stories about Jesus to hit you in a new and fresh way. Or it might mean that you won't need to engage um, your emotions about Jesus more. So maybe you find um, some, some music, some songs, um, perhaps classical, perhaps contemporary worship that just hit you, that just really bring uh, the, the truths of the gospel home to you in a, a way that you, your heart responds to, your emotions respond to. It might be that you... Um, you, want, you need to use your body. So maybe you find some of the practical things that Jesus commands and you try deliberately to really do them. And as you do them, you imagine that you are being Jesus' hands and feet and, and you imagine how he did those things to you. Like all of these things can really engage um, the core of us and ignite our, our love um, for him again. Um, I, if you want to talk more about that, I'd be really happy to have a chat because I think there's lots to talk about there. Okay, I think that's plenty of questions, uh, taking up lots of time. Um, so I will hand over to Siebert, I think, who is just going to lead us again in, in worship with a great song that, at least for me, really um, affects my emotions and my love for Jesus in a great way. Thanks, Siebert. <laughs> 